0: What do sheep, Islamic fascists, and Vladimir Putin have in common? Anthrax. The poor man's weapon of mass destruction, the disease has been recognized since biblical times. You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing anthrax during bioterrorism week here on ReachMD. In this segment, we will be focusing on the use of anthrax as a bioweapon. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Nicholas Bergman. Dr. Bergman received his PhD in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is currently an assistant professor in the School of Biology at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, He has recently published a paper examining some of the genomic properties of anthrax in the Journal of Bacteriology. Welcome, Dr. Bergman. Thank you. What I'm interested in in this segment is really going over anthrax as a weapon. When were the first serious efforts made, uh, and by whom were they made, to turn this uh, rather uncommon bacterial infection in humans into a a weapon of mass destruction?
1: Well, I think certainly you read about efforts by the Germans to do things in World War One. During World War Two, we had efforts by the British, the U.S., certainly the Japanese. I think there probably were some other countries trying to do this, too. And there, it wasn't used by anybody except the Japanese in testing on some Chinese civilians. Um, after World War Two, we saw more of an explosion of people trying to use biological weapons. And for the most part, I think anthrax, Bacillus anthracis was the first one picked in most cases. So the Soviets had a huge production setup up for making B. anthracis spores and weaponizing those and developing different ways of delivering those.
0: Why uh, was anthrax the first one picked? What about smallpox or the plague? I mean, there's so many attractive plagues out there. Why would anthrax get everybody's attention first?
1: For a couple of reasons. First is, I think this is probably the biggest reason, the fact that you deliver B. anthracis in spore form, in a form in which it's really resistant to a lot of harsh environmental conditions, means that, and this is the infectious form, it means that basically you can manufacture that form, put that in a weapon, and you can disperse it without worrying about killing off the bug inside the bomb. So a lot of these other bugs, say Yersinia pestis, are a lot more fragile, and so you have to think about specific delivery methods that won't destroy the bacteria in dispersing them.
0: I think I remember something about the Japanese uh, releasing infected rats to loose uh, Yersinia pestis on the Chinese countryside. I think they actually unfortunately had some success with that. I think they did. Yeah. But I I guess the central point here is it's the spore form that makes this so attractive. How long did the British and the Americans work on this? And uh, I mean, have we stopped?
1: Yes. The British I'm not sure when they stopped, if before this point, but certainly by 1972, the Americans and the British had stopped all offensive research. Uh, we've continued research into anthrax, particularly the Army has since then, but it's all been basically countermeasures because not everybody signed the biological treaty in 1972, biological weapons treaty. So we've continued some defensive research, but certainly we've stopped offensive work.
0: Well, if memory serves, the Russians, at the USSR actually signed the treaty in 1972.
1: Is that correct? They
0: did, yes. But we have no doubt whatsoever that uh, they signed the treaty and then actually accelerated their work on anthrax as well as probably two dozen other pathogens. Right. So what do we know about what did the Russians do with the program? What do you know about how much did they make or how they improve anthrax as a weapon?
1: Yeah, they made quite a lot of it. And I think in their case, they were attracted to anthrax over other pathogens. I mean, they, they certainly developed a lot of other pathogens, but they were particularly attracted to anthrax because the spore form is hardy enough that you could disperse it with an ICBM. They did a lot to develop anthrax as a weapon. That includes trying to develop drug-resistant strains. We know they did a lot of work there. We know they did some work in trying to make it more pathogenic than it normally is. It doesn't need a lot of help, but they tried. They really developed quite a lot, and I think they produced you know, huge quantities, tons of the stuff.
0: How do we know they destroyed it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure we do.
0: What I'm interested uh, also in exploring is uh, they had a rather spectacular accident at a town I can barely pronounce in 1979, right. Sverdlovsk or something like that. Right, Svrdlovsk. okay. Sure. Yep. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. This was a, um, a closed city. It's a good-sized city, I think a little over a million people. And they had a bioweapons facility. This is a production, not necessarily research facility. Basically, as I understand it, what happened was one of the workers, so they only had one set of filters protecting the exhaust from the production cultures, protecting that area from the outside air. And at one point, one of the workers went to change the filters and ended up removing the one without replacing it. And he didn't make a note or didn't tell the supervisor. And so when they turned the production line back on, it ran for several hours, basically spewing weaponized spores out the exhaust of the factory. This happened for a few hours before somebody caught it and put the filter back on. So what happened after that was that the factory across the street was, I guess, the most noticeable in that everybody working there, or essentially everybody working there, got anthrax pretty quickly. And then over the course of the next six weeks or so, you had a number of people, I think there were maybe 90 cases, I'd have to go back and check for sure, in the surrounding area that... Got anthrax, and I think about two thirds of them died.
0: If you have just joined us, you are listening to Reach MD, XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Nicholas Bergman, an expert on the biology and genomics of anthrax. This segment has been focusing on the use of anthrax as a bioweapon. So, those 90 people didn't they all get, like, inhalational anthrax?
1: They did. But that was a source of contention in the sense that the Soviets all claimed they were intestinal cases. And so we didn't know until the early 90s, since the Western scientists weren't allowed in. This happened in 79. So for 13 years, the Western scientists could only speculate.
0: But even uh, 90 cases of intestinal anthrax, uh, doesn't that sound pretty statistically unlikely, given the fact that this almost is a very rare occurrence in nature?
1: Yes, it does. And... The Soviets made a pretty compelling case saying that there was some contaminated meat that made it to that particular market and that it was sold all within, you know, a short period and that explained the huge spike in anthrax cases. The Soviet Union has anthrax endemic and it's usually at much lower levels, but they do have it and they said, "Well, we just had a huge outbreak of contaminated meat and in intestinal cases."
0: Why did only 90 people get inhalational anthrax from this? If the factory is in the middle of the city, if anthrax is such an effective weapon and they ran the production line without filters for several hours, why didn't uh, many more people get sick?
1: As far as I know, it's mostly because the wind was blowing in the right direction. So the wind was blowing out of town and it didn't blow over a whole lot.
0: Oh, and then the spores just uh, dispersed so much that... Exactly. I so see they the infectious
1: drop... dose is high enough that if you get to a certain point, so, you know, the infectious dose or the lethal dose is about 10,000 spores, so if you get down to a point where there aren't that many around in the environment, you can still have a significant area that's contaminated, but not really enough to give you a lot of infections happening.
0: What uh, countries nowadays are suspected of having weaponized anthrax?
1: You know, certainly I think the Soviets still have some, and or the, the Russians, rather, Iraq certainly made some for a long time, and whether we can find it now or not, they had it at one point. Uh, We don't really know about a lot of the other countries. We have suspicions, but, say, North Korea, for instance, we're pretty sure they have them, but we don't know exactly how much. We don't know how much they've invested in biological warfare. We just assume that.
0: I want to turn our attention now to the postal attack a few years ago in which Apparently, anthrax spores were sent out through the postal system, and if memory serves, uh, five people died. Did they die of inhalational anthrax, or did they get cutaneous anthrax, or what happened to them?
1: There was a mix of cutaneous and inhalational anthrax in those cases, but I think, I could be remembering this wrong, but as far as I know, all the fatalities were inhalational cases.
0: Why has it been so difficult to catch the perpetrator?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. When that happened, those of us, who were working on anthrax really put a lot of stock in kind of this new science of microbial forensics. We thought for sure with the rapid gain in how quickly we could sequence a genome that we'd be able to sequence those isolates from those letters and trace it back to a particular lab and immediately get down to a few suspects. And what we found is that for most bacteria that would work just fine. But in general, B anthracis evolves much more slowly. It has a very conserved genome. So What we found is that you can take samples that were given out a few years ago by a common lab and disperse to, say, five or six other labs. And what we find is that when we sequence those isolates, they're all still pretty much identical. So we can type the strain that came in those letters, and it's the AIMS strain. We know where it came from, you know, so we can trace it back to, most likely, to Fort Detrick. But Fort Detrick has been giving it out to different research labs around the country for a while now. And so we don't know exactly where it came from.
0: But isn't the pool of suspects only researchers who know something about anthrax, by and large?
1: Well, that's another good question, because there has been some talk of the possibility that maybe these spores weren't manufactured by the terrorists. Maybe they were stolen. Maybe they were stolen from a small stockpile at Fort Detrick that was used for testing vaccines and that kind of thing. In that case, now you don't necessarily need a lot of research experience. Maybe all you need is some biosafety experience. In any case, B. is much simpler to work with than most other bioweapon agents, smallpox, say, or any of the viral agents, for that matter. I don't think it takes a PhD, necessarily, to, to really produce this stuff. Now, to refine it and make a good weaponized version of it takes some experience, certainly. But there's still been some controversy over how much that was done.
0: How did one go about disinfecting a post office?
1: Yeah, that has been really tricky. The chemicals needed to do that are extraordinarily harsh. We know the spores basically survive, you know, pretty much everything we throw at it short of a concentrated bleach solution or something along those lines. So, as I understand it, the main the Brentwood Postal facility for instance cost something like 120 million to clean and took 2 years.
0: So the attack wasn't as lethal uh, since it only killed, I think, five people, but it caused a huge disruption in everyday life, particularly in the males.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So I think that's another aspect of uh, bioterrorism. Right. I want to thank Dr. Nicholas Bergman, a nationally recognized expert on anthrax who has been our guest. We have been discussing the use of anthrax as a bioweapon. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.